0: We're back here at the Activist File, so I'm Leah Todd, and I'm joined here by Angelo Quizado, our staff attorney here at CCR, and Lupe Aguirre, who's a Bertha Fellow here at CCR. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You all have been down on both sides, as I understand, of the southern U.S. border, uh, involved in a lot of work going on regarding some of you know the major national news issues going on there. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing and what you've seen?
1: Sure. We went down to the southern Mexico-U.S. border to support our client Al lado to support two of our current cases. The first is Al lado v. Nielsen, which deals with the government's rejection of individuals seeking asylum at ports of entry, and to support the asylum ban case, or East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, versus Trump, which denies individuals the ability to apply for asylum if they crossed, quote-unquote,
0: unlawfully. And Lupe, what were you involved in doing around these issues?
2: So primarily I went to support the clients. There's ongoing efforts of volunteer attorneys to kind of triage the crisis that's going on in Tijuana, given the extensive wait times to get processed into the U.S., which is the subject of our litigation in uh, Al Otro Lado, Vinielsen. And given my immigration attorney background from before the fellowship, I had some technical skills. And so I was hoping to kind of give consultations and know your rights presentations to the migrants waiting in Tijuana. Great. And can you
0: both give us a little bit of context about, you know, how we got here, what these two cases are, you know, responding to and sort of the status of where we're at?
1: Of course. So for the last few years, United States Customs and Border Protection has denied individuals the right to apply for asylum at official ports of entry and that's to say that sometimes CBP agents would say well we don't really like Guatemalans so we're not going to take any today. Hey did you know that Trump is president so there's no more asylum or even worse just forcing individuals out of ports of entry at gunpoint. We've seen this process and these practices systematized and it's become an official border-wide policy stretching from San Diego, Tijuana, all the way down to Brownsville, Matamoros. So we sued, <laughs> thanks to our client on the other lado, who I like to say is the ballast that keeps human rights afloat at the border. We've challenged these turnaway practices, and we're still litigating that.
0: Kind of what we've seen in the news a bit lately has been, you know, talk about the caravan and, uh, you know, the U.S. administration's response, the kind of criminalizing of people coming and seeking, uh, you know, asylum status. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that has influenced that case proceeding and maybe some of our other work around that issue?
1: Sure. The caravan is an organized response to the collective need to seek safe haven and refuge. And I think the caravan was, and this isn't the first caravan and it won't be the last, and this go-around was particularly uh, vilified and demonized by many members of the media and, of course, our president. And although Central Americans have been fleeing violence and persecution in their home countries for years now, this is probably the most well-publicized attempt of oppressed people to organize to more safely protect their right to migrate and to obtain safe haven somewhere where they won't be persecuted. And so we went down to support some six or 7,000 individuals marooned in Tijuana.
0: Lupe, do you want to speak a little bit about how that background has sort of influenced what you were able to do
2: when you were doing this work? Sure. So one thing I want to mention is just kind of how the narrative that the media is portraying of the, the caravan differs from the narrative of the folks on the ground speaking to people that were there on Sunday during the tear gassing of the families that were trying to peacefully protest. They characterized it just as such peaceful protest. And some of the responses from the media calling it kind of a surge or swarm those kinds of words just differ drastically from the actual experiences of the people that were on the ground the legal observers not necessarily the migrants themselves but the legal observers that were there who were with the folks who were just trying to peacefully protest to assert their right to seek asylum in the US Angela had mentioned
0: Ala Trulado and our clients on the ground, and you'd spoke in about how you've been involved in your rights trainings and other work that's kind of supporting um, the organizing that's going on. And so I just wondered how groups on the ground have been responding to these media narratives, the border militarization, all the things that have been happening. How are groups responding?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that because one of the points that I wanted to hit was just kind of the inspiration that I found from the folks on the ground. I don't see how they do this day in day out. I'm sure they get inspiration from the resilience of the migrants themselves and this like quest for some semblance of justice. And so volunteers are organizing al otro lado is I think spearheading this and they're kind of part of the work that we did was kind of trying to create an infrastructure to how we're going to triage these thousands of folks that have more likely viable asylum claims and give them preparation for when they do enter the U.S. if they attempt to do so.
0: And can you both speak about what you see as the next for a case, given these sort of new developments?
1: One of the things that I saw down at the border was certainly the United States' shifted from sort of ostrich head in the sand. Like, we aren't aware that in order to apply for asylum, you have to get on this migrant-run wait list that takes people six weeks now, could be four months, before they're able to access the asylum process, to actually, I spoke with someone on the migrant committee who actually oversees the list themselves. And he was like, we met with CBP agents, actually, who came into Mexico with Mexican immigration officials. And that's a stunning revelation, right? It's not so much that CBP is like, oh, we're going to leave them in Mexico. And this is a Mexican problem as to how best to apportion out our ability to give people access to the asylum process. It's very clear that the United States is doing this, effectuating this process itself. And it's not just happening in San Diego. When I was in El Paso in Juarez, I was able to speak with advocates down there who said that CBP, Mexican Immigration, Grupos Beta, which is an immigration human rights arm sort of, were brokering a negotiation as to how best to deal with the influx of migrants marooned in Juarez. There were over 150 individuals stationed or camped out on three bridges before they were eventually evicted. And I guess as it relates to our case, we see that the United States has taken an active role in effectuating this policy and no longer is uh, denying any involvement. And so I think that that's a key thing that'll come out in discovery for the Alotor V. Nielsen case. As for the asylum ban case, probably going to the Supreme Court. So see you there.
0: Did you want to speak a little bit more about that? Because I think we talked more about the Nielsen case than we did that. Maybe you can give just a little bit more background than before.
1: Totally. So two weeks ago, maybe it's hard to remember with (laughs) everything happening, President Trump issued a proclamation along with an interim final rule from DHS and someone else. The acting attorney, General Whitaker, denying anyone the ability to apply for asylum who cross quote-unquote illegally. But, you know, these cases really interact because if you're denied the ability to apply for asylum at an official port of entry, you know, what Sessions called the right way, you just get in line and wait, you can't leave people for two months in these extraordinarily dangerous border towns. I've talked to people, our witnesses in our cases that have been assaulted, robbed, raped, who died, waiting to apply for asylum and so you're effectively forcing people to cross quote unquote unlawfully because they know as the INA congressional law over this is very clear you can apply for asylum irrespective of how you present to an officer whether it's at a port or whether it's a mile across the border and so I think the point is that the administration is trying to create a total ban on asylum by effectively closing both doors and so the asylum ban challenges the president's authority to issue such a sweeping proclamation in light of very clear congressional intent that says you can apply for asylum whether or not at your port of entry. And that's a direct quote.
0: Maybe I'll let you tell us. I believe we were successful in that case, even though it's being appealed.
1: Yeah, we, we won a TRO um, last week. Judge Tiger in San Francisco issued a fantastic ruling. And the government asked to stay while they appealed it. and He denied that too. And he said, I hope this is a lesson to the government that the way to fix statutes that they disagree with isn't to issue proclamations that are in complete contravention of that statute. And it was a pretty stunning rebuke from the judiciary.
0: Great. Well, that's at least a little good news. Yeah. Just kind of going back to some of the really severe stories that you just told us of people, you know, trying to wait and access asylum in these supposed ports of entry. And just seeing, you know, as you spoke about these harmful media narratives that are kind of being propagated in light of the caravan of people seeking asylum. You know, I was looking at some of the news footage and I saw, you know, Trump saying things to crowds of people just cheering him saying, you know, I don't see any women and children down there. You know, it's all men. And it seems to me there's like very intentional signaling there. And I just kind of wanted to hear how are people kind of talking about this, you know, this criminalizing this clearly intentional way, you know, how is this kind of affecting people who are down there?
2: Yeah, I can speak to that. I am a Mexicana, Chicana, and I've been very disappointed with the response of some Mexican nationals and Mexicans on the US side who have kind of like repeated this Trumpian rhetoric against fellow Latinx. Historically, there has been great tension with Central American countries and Mexico, especially given kind of the Mexican government history of going along with what US politicians want. And so speaking with folks in Mexico or in Tijuana, there's a disconnect or a lack of awareness of similar struggles and similar complaints as to the treatment of Mexicans. And, you know, that's, that's very disappointing that you can't see those parallels. And so it's frankly racist rhetoric mm-hmm. that they have adopted and... That's also being helped by the media narrative. So they don't see the reasons why folks are fleeing. They don't see who's actually on the ground. They don't see the peacefulness of, of the protests and actions that are being begun on the ground there. They just go along with what the rhetoric says, that these are dangerous people.
0: So um, on the flip side of that, having seen the reality of the people who are doing this organizing together on the ground, you know, who are very different from the stereotypes that are being, you know, pushed out by the media. You know, what kind of self-organizing in response? You spoke about this a little bit. Maybe you can go a little more in depth about the kind of organizing you're seeing happening with different
2: groups on the ground uh, in response. Well, one thing that I remember hearing during my time in Tijuana are the migrants are forming councils and representations from different regions of the countries to kind of organize themselves they also organize the way aid is being distributed. There's like an organizational system, a ticketing systems at times. Um, those are just a couple of examples that I've seen.
1: It's democracy in its truest form. I think one of the most heartening things I saw down there amongst a parade of horribles was the organization resolve and spirit, as well as a whole host of volunteers who had come from near and far to help assist I think Food Not Bombs was there, cooking meals, distributing, setting up clinics, shelters, you know, everyone down there amongst a diffuse set of tasks. There was no task too small or too large for any individual. There were lawyers handing out water and that they were just like people who spoke Spanish willing to translate prep sessions for people who had credible fear screenings. It was really nice to see.
0: It sounds like there was really powerful organizing happening and people, you know, just filling roles that were needed. And, you know, with some of the successes we've had, hopefully, with the litigation, it seems like there's both good and bad possibilities. But just kind of building off of what you're both just speaking about, is there anything that makes you hopeful
2: or, you know, beyond that
0: that you could share?
2: Just to underscore what Angelo said, just the way folks can still hold on to their humanity and their dignity in times of crisis and deplorable horrible conditions and treatment by two powerful governments. I've got a lot of inspiration to keep going by some of the weddings that occurred. Yeah. Al Otro Lado has very strategically and ingeniously helped folks get married with the hopes that once they cross the border those families that might have been separated absent that. marriage certificate can stay together. And uh, shout out to clergy that assisted from New Sanctuary Coalition. I attended three weddings in one week, and that really helps people keep going, the volunteers at least, and I'm sure the migrants as well.
1: Yeah, I cried a few times this week, but one was definitely of joy after a New Sanctuary-led wedding. I, uh, like, ran out immediately to buy champagne para brindar, you know. You can have mm-hmm. a wedding, you can have a celebration. So it was really great to see New Sanctuary down there occupying the space that's sorely needed.
0: Just for uh, listeners who are, you know, learning a bit more about what it looks like closest at hand there, is there anything folks can do to kind of directly help what's going on?
1: Yeah, if you're an immigration lawyer and you have a good heart, I would recommend taking a trip down, arranging it with al otro lado to provide very valuable prep services for the people who have viable asylum claims. Likewise, if you're a Spanish speaker in, in Southern California, hop across the border to help support. They, of course, also accept financial donations, which will help them better effectuate uh, what's needed since they've been there, live there, and do that project.
2: Yeah, there's a strong need for immigration attorneys, especially ones that have direct experiences with vulnerable populations like um, LGBTQI folks under unaccompanied minors and asylum cases. I was one of a few, I want to say two or three uh, immigration attorneys for the first few days I was there. So it was a heavy lift. So the more immigration attorneys that can volunteer their time, it's a very powerful experience. And um, your time will be very well used. Is there anything we haven't really gotten a chance to talk about
0: that that you'd like to share? Any parting words or
1: yeah? Abolish the border. <laughs> I think one of the things that's coming very clear in the picture here is that the United States and Mexico are both sharing responsibility for not assisting or meeting the demands of this humanitarian crisis. But when you look at what happened on Sunday, tear gassing migrant children, and you start to think that like, maybe the alternative is better, maybe just... Not having a militarized border and letting people freely come through and dealing with it on the back end is actually the preferred alternative if the response is going to be gassing children. I think that although once a radical position, I think uh, demilitarizing the border, abolishing the immigration detention system has come more into the mainstream. And I certainly think that that will resonate clearly with our listeners and maybe some of the listeners' friends. So that's something that I wanted to share.
2: And if we're going to abolish the border, abolish ICE as well.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. One anecdote that I didn't want to leave without sharing. Thanks to the folks at the Hope Border Institute, I went on an ICE detention tour. I've been to a few, but I'd never been to one in Texas. So I went along for the ride and I hadn't known this, but apparently detainees are assigned different risk categories and given shirts that reflect their various risk categories. So it's like, Oh, if you're, like, a person with no criminal history and you just have, like, an immigration violation, you're given a blue shirt. If you have, like, a minor criminal violation, you're given an orange shirt. And if you have serious criminal history, you're given a red shirt. And I asked the ICE officer or whoever, well, you know, how are these risk factors apportioned? And he was like, well, criminal history and there's some discretionary factors. And I was like, huh. Discretionary factors. I wonder what factors those are because for the two-thirds of the tour I only saw blue and orange shirts and it seemed like what you'd expect to be in an immigration detention was mostly folks Who are Latinx? I mean, it's Texas. And I was like, where are they hiding all of the red shirts? Until the very end of the tour when we were in the food hall and 50 or 60 red shirts came in and There was just one striking defining quality about all of them. Can anyone guess what it was?
0: Were they perhaps all black?
1: They were all black, every single one of the 50 red-shirted detainees. And even for ICE, that's a little on the nose. So ICE, if you're listening, there'll be a FOIA request coming in the mail in the coming week. (laughs) I mean, you know, sometimes it reminds me of the Dave Chappelle joke. You see something so racist, you're not even mad. You're just like, wow, that was really racist. Anyways.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so thank you both so much for taking the time and talking to us about, uh, you know, what you've seen and experienced and worked on. And please, everyone, remember to give your support in whatever way you can um, to El Otrolado, uh, New Sanctuary Movement. Um, and then perhaps you want to just repeat some of the groups that we're working down there that could use your support.
1: Hope Border Institute out of El Paso. Detained Migrant Solidarity Committee, also out of El Paso.
2: Chirla from L.A. sent some attorneys. Immigrant Defender Services, I believe, also sent attorneys. Pretty much folks on the ground doing immigrant direct representation and on-the-ground organizing, those are the folks that should be receiving your money.
1: Also, if you're a law student coming up stressed out after finals and you have a breakup coming, it would be nice if you've done immigration clinical work to head down. And support. Uh, Many of the volunteers down there were law students themselves from the UC Irvine Immigration Clinic. Shout out to Professor Lai, who's been a longtime ally.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much.